Friends, if you would take your copy of the Word of the Lord and turn with me to 2 Chronicles and chapter 32. 2 Chronicles chapter 32, and we're going to read together verses 20 to 23. And before we read the Word of the Lord, let us ask the help of our God to understand. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, we pray that you would come near to us as we read your word, that you would give our ears a readiness to hear and our hearts a willingness to accept. We pray that you would seal your word to us and sanctify us by this word, which is the very truth of the living God, because we ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Second well, Chronicles 32 Beginning in verse 20, this is the word of the Lord. Then Hezekiah the king and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed because of this and cried to heaven. And the Lord sent an angel who cut off all the mighty warriors and commanders and officers in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned with shame of face to his own land. And when he came into the house of his God, some of his own sons struck him down there with the sword. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all his enemies. And he provided for them on every side. And many brought gifts to the Lord to Jerusalem, and precious things to Hezekiah king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all nations from that time onward. Well, this is God's holy word. Well, as we take up our text tonight, we are on the heels of Sennacherib king of Assyria sending his lackeys to intimidate Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem. And Sennacherib appears to have Hezekiah by the throat. He laid waste to Judah's fortified cities, nearly 50 of them. Before that, he had whipped all the nations surrounding Judah. Sennacherib's been an unstoppable force. He's been conquering, deporting hundreds of thousands, brutalizing any resistance with an early form of crucifixion. And now he's got Jerusalem surrounded and Hezekiah on the ropes. Well, thus far... Hezekiah has stood firm against this great power. You remember he preached a message to the people that Yahweh is with us. Yahweh is our helper. Yahweh will fight our battles. And yet the heat of this situation has only intensified. And to such a degree that to the eyes of flesh, it appears that Hezekiah will be squashed. He has no ability to resist Sennacherib's great army. All he has is the character of God and the promise of God. But we shall see that the Lord our God is enough. I want you to note three things as we make our way through this incredible section. And let me say I recognize that I could, some say I could be straining a gnat by taking such a small chunk of a historical narrative. But I want to remind you again that like the fourfold account of deliverance, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this story of deliverance we're reading tonight is conveyed in Scripture three times. What does that mean? It means it's really important. 
It means there are lessons here which the Lord keeps telling us to observe and to take to heart. So we're going to really dig into this little section and see the greatness of our God because salvation belongs to the Lord. So first see with me, the cry to God, the cry to God there in verse 20. Now, throughout the book of Chronicles, there has been a prominent theme, prayer. Prayer in times of blessing, prayer in times of distress. When the Lord made a covenant with David, David sat down before his sovereign Lord and he prayed, 1 Chronicles 17. When David was approaching his death and he was turning the kingdom over to Solomon, he, in the midst of a great assembly, prayed that Solomon and the people would be directed towards the Lord, 1 Chronicles 29. When the temple was finally constructed, Solomon dedicated that structure to the Lord in prayer, 2 Chronicles 6. And the Lord was pleased to answer the prayer with fire coming down from heaven and consuming the altar. And then the Lord gave a reassuring word that He would hear His people in their afflictions. One of the most famous verses in Chronicles, if my people who are called by my name, humble themselves and do what? Pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Well, that promise has proven to be true. When King Asa was attacked by Zerah the Ethiopian and a million men, Asa cried to Yahweh and Yahweh heard and delivered. 2 Chronicles 14. When Jehoshaphat was afraid, as a great multitude from Moab, Ammon, and Edom came to attack him, he humbled himself and cried out in his affliction. And what happened? The Lord heard and delivered. Well, now we have a new crisis with Hezekiah here. And the threats against him have been pervasive. Sennacherib has sent ambassadors twice, and then he sent letters on top of that to bring the hammer against Hezekiah. The situation is truly desperate. Without divine intervention, Jerusalem and her king stand on the brink of total destruction. And to up the ante for us, what a threat this is to the Davidic covenant. Tim prayed extensively through Psalm 89 on the Davidic covenant. All that comes crashing down if this man is killed. Sennacherib hasn't been playing nice with the leaders of nations, giving them a diplomatic pass when he desires to conquer their cities. He's been impaling them on poles as conquered people, saying this is what happens to rebels. What would happen if Sennacherib got his hands on Hezekiah and the royal family? What do you think he would do? He would slaughter them all. Then what of a promise of a Davidic king? What of the hope of a forever kingdom, a shoot coming from the stump of Jesse to utter, usher in the days of peace? All of those hopes would perish. And surely, beloved, that's Satan's intention with these threats from Sennacherib. The devil aims, just as he tried in the days of Moses when Hebrew boys were being tossed in the Nile, just as he tried through that witchy woman, Athaliah, killing the Davidic house, Satan tries to bring an end to the hope of a Savior to come, the very one prophesied to crush Satan's head. So what does Hezekiah do when the darkness threatens? <clears throat> he prays. Look at verse 20. Then Hezekiah the king and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed because of this and cried 
to heaven. The picture painted in 2 Kings 19 is even more dramatic. Hezekiah takes one of the letters received from Sennacherib, outlining how Sennacherib will tear Jerusalem to pieces, how no God can stand before him. And Hezekiah runs to the house of the Lord and he spreads out the letter in the temple before the Lord. And it's a striking picture, or it should be to us, of what it means to cast your burdens on the Lord. You lay out the whole picture. You tell God everything. You detail the assaults of the enemy. You convey the specifics of your crisis. God doesn't want you to sum up. He wants you to tell Him your whole heart. You run to God knowing He has power over the terrorists, the dictators, the armies, even the small-time bullies of this world. And you relate with all honesty your anxieties, your fears. You trust in Him at all times. And you pour out your heart before Him, praying for peace to the God of great power. Beloved, is that what we do when crisis comes upon us? None of us tonight are staring down an army and their brutality surrounding our city. But we all have our own individual crises. We have people in our lives who slander us. We have a hostile world persecuting us with insults and mockery. We have financial pressures squeezing us with mounting bills. We've got medical pressures with doctors conveying bad news to us. And on top of all that, we have a railing adversary, the devil, who tells us that our sin and our situation puts us past the point of help from the Lord. What do we do when trouble mounts? How do we face the cusp of calamity? We hasten to God in prayer. We cry out to Him and tell Him everything. Is that our pattern? Do we come to God and acknowledge with the confession of our sins, His mercies to us, and then lay out before Him the source of our anxiety waiting upon His gracious help. Why should we do this? Because of God's promise and command. He tells you to do this. Psalm 50, verse 15, Call upon Me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you. Psalm 55, 22, Cast your burden upon the Lord, and He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. What a promise that is. Psalm 34, 15-17, The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, His ear toward their cry. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them. And brethren, this is even what our Savior did in His ministry when the darkness surrounded and then enveloped Him. When adversaries mounted against Jesus, He spent all night in prayer. John 6 and again in Luke 9. When the forces of evil gathered to come and arrest Him, Jesus there in dark Gethsemane poured out His heart to the Father. And then as Jesus hung on that cruel tree receiving our curse, when the sky literally went dark and serpentine sounds mouthed their words, through the adversaries at the foot of the cross, mocking Him and writing Him off as abandoned. What did Jesus do? He prayed. He faced an apparently hopeless situation and there's never been a situation that looked that dark. With prayer, Psalm 22 will detail all that He prayed, but He had an eye of faith to look to the promises of the Father. And that is exactly what we should do. 
Hezekiah models this. But brethren, did you notice it's not just Hezekiah praying? It's also the prophet Isaiah praying. Now we don't know for sure how this worked out. Are both of them in the temple praying side by side? Or are they in different locales calling upon the name of the Lord? It's probably the latter because Isaiah will send a message to Hezekiah in 2 Kings 19. But how often throughout Chronicles have we seen king and prophet united among the people of God? Not very often. We've seen Ahab call Elijah the troubler of Israel. We've seen courageous Jehu rebuked Jehoshaphat for making a wicked alliance with Ahab. We've seen Zechariah the prophet denounce Joash's idolatry and get stoned for it. And because of the evil pattern of so many kings, even good kings at times, there has been an adversarial relationship between king and prophet. But here we see what it ought to be. The leaders of God's people, knowing that they are weak, knowing that their only hope is Yahweh and pleading to Him together for mercy. My friends, this is true leadership on display. You want to know what godly leadership looks like? It does not look like acting as though you have all the answers, devising solutions to every problem, and puffing up your own ingenuity. Godly leadership is coming before the Lord knowing you lack wisdom knowing that you are overmatched by trouble, humbling yourself and crying out to Him. You see, the chronicler is no doubt delivering a message to his original audience. You, brethren, must be united in seeking God. And surely there's an enduring lesson for us too. Do you want to evidence true godly leadership in your home? Do you want to see it evidence in this church? Then what should we be doing? We should be humbling ourselves before the Lord and praying. We should be casting the needs of the people of God upon our God. We're not trying to be savvy, super smart, as though we're skilled problem solvers. We're really not that smart. We're not trying to turn to our, ourselves for solutions as though we would trust in our own heart. No, we want to be known as a person and a people of prayer. Is that how the people of God know you, dear elders and deacons? That you are men of prayer? Is that what our children would know about us, fathers and mothers? That we are people of prayer? Let us be as those, or like those, whom Jehoshaphat indicates when he says this, O oh, our God, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Well, secondly, see, not just the cry to God, but the answer from God. Second Kings 19, in response to Hezekiah's prayer, Isaiah the prophet is given a word to the king. Now, we don't read that part of the story in our text, but here's what Isaiah told the king. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. And then Isaiah utters a great proclamation on Assyria's downfall because Assyria dared to blaspheme the name of the Lord. Well, here, it's a much simpler picture that we get. The Lord just tells us what happens. We get a report of facts. Do you see it there in the text? 
Verse 21, and the Lord sent an angel. Now that simple, that simple language has a pedigree in the Scriptures. One that can both encourage and terrify. The Lord has sent an angel multiple times and brought deliverance or curse. We think of Moses when he's recounting the mercy of God and he's speaking to an Edomite king in Numbers 20. He relates what Yahweh had done when Israel was oppressed in Egypt. And he says this, When we cried to the Lord, He heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. Psalm 78 says it was a band of destroying angels that struck down the firstborn of Egypt. What must that have been like? A band of destroying angels moving through all of Egypt to crush the firstborn of man and beast. And it was the angel of the Lord that guided the people of God out of the house of slavery. As they go into the promised land, the Lord told Moses in Exodus 23, I, would send, I will send my angel before you to guard your way. It was the angel of the Lord that stood in the way of Balaam's donkey and bound Balaam's mouth to speak only words of blessing. And by the time the chronicler writes, the Lord sending an angel is not an idea confined to the past. It's something that had happened in the days of exile. When God's people were there in Babylon, and Babylon is aiming to take away everything that made them the covenant people of God, their education, their vocation, even their names, as they tried to force them into idolatry, the Lord sent an angel to protect them. You remember Daniel chapter 3, when Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, I'm confident those are the names they would want to be known by. Those are Hebrew names. But when you read of, as you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they were thrown into the fire, and Nebuchadnezzar would say, after the deliverance, God sent His angel and delivered His servants who trusted in Him. Daniel 3. Then, then after Darius was goaded in Daniel 6 into making a ridiculous law that all the people must pray to Him or be thrown into the lion's den, and when Daniel didn't pray to him, but prayed to the Lord, just as his custom, three times a day, and he's thrown into the lion's den, and apparently in a death-inducing spot. The next morning, the king runs to find out how it went with Daniel. And he calls to Daniel. And Daniel's there. How has he been spared? Daniel explained. My God sent His angel and shut the lion's mouth. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before Him. Daniel would not be dissuaded from seeking the Lord and the Lord sent His angel to be the deliverer. Well, we could say that God sending an angel in response to prayer to deliver His people in their distress is a work that God is ready and willing to do. And that's what He does in our text. What money couldn't solve paying off Sennacherib so that he would go away. What diplomacy couldn't fix. There was no negotiating with Sennacherib. He sent his ambassadors of doom. What no army could handle. Hezekiah, he's made weapons, but his forces are meager before Assyria's great might. Whatever man-centered resource could be marshaled proved incapable of help. But prayer... Prayer to God Almighty has done it. God heard prayer 
and he was pleased to intervene. Shouldn't that move us to cry out to God who brings deliverance? Shouldn't it compel us to pray for our enemies to be conquered and for souls to be transferred into the kingdom of God? Shouldn't it make us look to our God to guard us in every way, knowing that His angel encamps around those who fear the Lord, Psalm 34, 7? Well, what did divine intervention look like in this particular case? The text says, verse 21, that Yahweh's angel cut off all the mighty warriors and commanders and officers in the camp of the king of Assyria. Note the word all in that sentence. Here were Sennacherib's fighting men who in the stone reliefs, the images that they have carved to display themselves from this period, these are dudes you did not want to mess with. I've been to the British Museum. One of the most staggering things to see is to walk into the Assyria room and see the exhibit and how these men were displayed as warriors. They're displayed as riding on chariots and firing their bows. Can you imagine firing a bow from a chariot and being accurate? And they were. They were deadly hurlers of spears. They were men who, get this, went on lion hunts and killed them. Not with bow shots, but they got close to run through the beasts with the sword. These are bad dudes. But one angel, one angel of the Lord annihilated all of these guys. And the oppression of the text is that every general, every colonel and captain down to the sergeants leading the grunts into battle, every single one of them is slain. I'm reminded of that 2000 uh, Mel Gibson flick, The Patriot. A number of you probably seen it about the time of the Revolutionary War. Gibson's character is finally driven into vengeance by battle after his son or one of them was needlessly shot and another is about to be hanged. And he tells his younger boys as they run into the woods to use guerrilla tactics, they're hiding behind the trees of the forest, and he tells them to take out the officers of the British army. Because if you slay the officers the common soldier will be left in confusion and overtaken with fear. And that's exactly what happened. But it's what happened in our text. In one night, through a means that we're not told, was it a plague? Was it some cardiac arrest induced by supernatural, a supernatural pathogen? Was it the angel of the Lord somehow quickly actually plunging a sword into all of these men? I have no idea. But what I do know is the leadership of Assyrian ranks are all cut off. And as 2 Kings 19 reports it, when the men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. How many are we talking here? Chronicles doesn't tell you. Why not? Because this is so well known, you don't have to have the number. 185,000 Assyrians. That's a lot. And if the Lord chose, beloved, it could have been much more. The fact that the ranks of the Assyrian army are waking up to find their mighty warriors and commanders and officers dead means that there were a whole bunch more lower-tiered soldiers who could have been killed. 
And doesn't that further paint the picture about how desperate the situation was for Hezekiah? We've got 185,000 upper echelon warriors and military brass. Doesn't that suggest a multitude of common soldiers who were also present to crush Jerusalem? If we took a modern day ratio of officers to enlisted, enlisted men, something like 18% officers to 82% enlisted, this Assyrian camp could have contained well over a million men. Imagine looking out your city and seeing a million men standing ready to kill you. And here Hezekiah is in his little walled city, which is no more than 200 acres big. And there's an innumerable host out there that's going to wipe us off the face of the earth. And yet this army readying itself for battle went to bed a million strong and woke up to find 185,000 corpses among their leaders. It was a devastating blow. And it drove Sennacherib back home with all his big talk. It's interesting in the annals of Assyrian boasts, Sennacherib's victories are listed on those stone reliefs. I, I detailed to you the Taylor prism, which was discovered, which spells out to us 46 cities in Judah that had been whipped and the other nations that Sennacherib had defeated and the dire straits facing Jerusalem that Hezekiah is shut up like a bird in a cage. Well, Sennacherib doesn't go home and write about his humiliating loss. Kings don't usually do that. But in his writings, he never mentions Jerusalem again. Jerusalem is shut up like a bird in a cage. And then what? Silence. The implication is he never got the prize he sought and he wants nothing more to do with that city. He won't even talk about it. Furthermore, not only does the chronicler convey the cutting off of this large contingent of the Assyrian army, he speaks of the curse of God following King Sennacherib. Now the timing of the next episode isn't mentioned. It's a number of years later. But at some point when Sennacherib was back in Nineveh, verse 21, when he came into the house of his God, some of his own sons struck him down there with a sword. Humiliation is now added to humiliation. The prideful king puffed up his great power, but Yahweh takes out his finest without a fight. And further, Sennacherib's own boys killed their father. And where did they assassinate him? Don't miss this detail. In the house of his God. What does that tell you? It says that while Yahweh has the power to protect his king and his entire city, Sennacherib's God is impotent. He can't even protect the king when the king is in the middle of worship. In other words, he is no God at all. This is divine mockery showing you the folly of these idols. Well, brethren, look at the terror of the Lord that's on display here. If you make Yahweh your enemy, if you speak against Yahweh threatening His people, supposing that Yahweh has no ability to guard His worshipers and defend the honor of His name, you will face severe judgment. And God's people should draw immense comfort from this passage. It does show us that our God will fight for His people. He will strike down our enemies. It may not always be as earth-shattering as this episode, but the point is clear. Who can stand before Yahweh, the covenant God? 
And dear people, this night of terror where the great men of Assyria and their army are wiped out, it is a preview to us of a future day when the beast assembles the armies of earth, both men small and great, Revelation 19, to make war against the Lord Jesus and His people. And what will happen on that day? You know, when it's depicted by our imaginations, it's a day of intense struggle. There's ongoing conflict. We're almost losing. No. The king just shows up. The king appears. And with the sword of his mouth, he slays the wicked. It will not be like a protracted battle from D-Day to Berlin trying to conquer World War II. It won't be island hopping like we did in the Japanese islands trying to defeat the enemy, losing multitudes and multitudes of people. Paul says, 2 Thessalonians 2, with the breath of his mouth, King Jesus will prove victorious. It will be as effortless, as effortless as watching an angel slaughter 185,000 Assyrians. But why will the Lord do this? Why will He come to the aid of His people? Well, He will do it for His glory because He will not have His name blasphemed. He will do it to inflict justice against these prideful boasters and the pride of man will receive its due reward. But He will do it in answer to prayer. What did Jesus teach us to pray? Thy kingdom come. Do we pray for that? What does that day mean? Thy kingdom come. It means all the enemies of God will be eliminated and we will enter into a state of peace. Or Revelation 6, O holy God, our Lord, sovereign and true, how long before You will judge and avenge our blood? Well, in listening to our voices crying out to Him, the Lord will bring deliverance. John Newton once wrote, Come, my soul, thy suit prepare. Jesus loves to answer prayer. Even prayers this big. Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Do you pray for Christ Jesus to come and all the enemies of God to be struck down? And finally, see with me, praise for God. The praise begins with the chronicler's report. And as he reports it in verse 22, he doesn't attribute anything to the work of man. He doesn't highlight Hezekiah's water-diverting efforts, though that was very interesting. He doesn't highlight his wall construction or his weapon building, all of which we were told early in the chapter. He simply says the salvation is from the Lord. Verse 22, So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria. What a great statement. I know it's only a summary statement, but look at what the text is saying. Yahweh saved Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem. They were helpless and Yahweh saved. They were waiting upon the Lord, hoping that He would intervene, and He did. He came to fight the battle for them. He came near to rescue. When they set their hearts not on the things of the flesh, but by faith looking to the Lord who's stronger than those against us. The covenant God showed Himself mighty to save. And the chronicler is saying, Behold, look at what the covenant God has done. Look at this amazing deliverance. And don't you understand, our God is a God of deliverance. 
to Yahweh, our God, belongs deliverances from death. You just need to pray to Him. Surely it should motivate prayer. But not only did the Lord strike Assyria and drive them away, the text says, verse 22, that the Lord saved them from the hand of all His, Hezekiah's enemies. No power touched the apple of God's eye. No opposing force gave Hezekiah trouble throughout the rest of his reign. That's an incredible statement. Because we've been reading Chronicles for a long time, and it's war after war after war after war, and enemies coming and striking because of God's people's sin. That doesn't happen in this man's reign as God intervenes. And as God intervenes, we get an interesting note in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It says that the Lord gave them rest on every side. That's an interesting thing to say. If that's the right reading of the text, it would recall the days of David and Solomon, the golden era, when faithfulness was found among the people and the Lord gave them a taste of covenant blessings. He gave them rest. Even if that phrase, He gave them rest, isn't original, still the idea is there. For what would we call it when all of your enemies are driven away? We would call it rest. But it's not a rest that Hezekiah, through conquering, has procured. David got a rest by conquering. Hezekiah doesn't. It's a rest that God gave when His people had no power to make it happen. So the situation recalls the Exodus. God fought for His people while they stood still. And isn't this an emblem of the Gospel to us, dear people? Jesus offers us rest but it's not a rest that we have earned. It's not a rest for which we've labored hard by beating back our enemies. It's a rest that Christ purchased for us. And He didn't merely slay 185,000 Assyrians and keep other enemies at bay. Jesus defeated the devil. Jesus disarmed the authorities and powers, the demonic host. Jesus broke sin's dominion. Jesus shattered the grave. Jesus crushed the curse, and He ushers us into a rest that lasts forever. You already taste that rest. By faith, come unto Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We have rest. We have peace with God. We have the forgiveness of our sins. We are delivered from the dominating influence of the devil and under the direction of the Spirit of life and peace as new creatures in Christ. But the rest we already taste in our soul will be extended to a rest we'll experience in the entire world as Christ comes back to lay low all our enemies and we will lie down with nothing to make us afraid. This is an emblem of that coming day. The chronicler is telling his audience, look at what the Lord has done. And it should remind us of words of Jeremiah. Cursed is the man who trusts in man, who makes the arm of flesh his strength, but blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. What do these people do who trusted in the Lord when they see His great deliverance? We'll wrap up with this, verse 23. And many brought gifts to the Lord to Jerusalem and precious things to Hezekiah king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all nations from that time and onward. How do you begin to express your love to God for delivering you from certain death. Well, they bring the Lord 
gifts, tangible expressions of thanks. We don't know what they were, but they were tributes to the glory of God. They're making a public statement that the Lord is our God and the Lord is worthy of our best stuff, our biggest contributions. Well, our covenant God hasn't changed. He remains worthy of our expressions of thanks. Every token of loyalty and praise you could give Him. Now, we don't give to God as though He needs something. He already owns the cattle on a thousand hills. But we do give to Him. And what do we give? Romans 12, 1, in view of the mercies of God, we give our lives as a living sacrifice, crucified with Christ. And everything I am is His. I devote myself. I pour myself out as a drink offering because He saved my soul. Is that the way that you're responding to the deliverance of the Lord? As the Lord brings deliverance, we also see that Hezekiah is exalted among the people. He was in deep humiliation in view of this threatening enemy. Nowhere to go but the Lord. Cast himself on the Lord. And the Lord raises him up. That's a glimpse of King Jesus who is in the deepest humiliation. Threatened, reviled, accused, betrayed, cursed, condemned, struck down on the cross. But even while hanging on the cross, his eyes of faith turned to his Father and he cried out. And what happened? <clears throat> the Lord heard and answered prayer. And King Jesus was raised from the dead. And brethren, we know He's exalted. <clears throat> but the day will come when every eye will see His exaltation. And we will be there to enter our rest with Him. Praise be to God for this beautiful picture of the salvation that our Lord works. <clears throat> Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we stand astounded at your willingness to bend down your ear and hear the cry of your people. We are amazed at how kind you are to come with your mighty right hand and deliver. But Lord, we know that our deliverance is greater than what we're reading about here. As we are snatched from the muck and mire of sin, from Satan's fiefdom, and brought into the kingdom of your beloved Son. We pray, O oh Lord, that You would cause us to see how great our deliverance is and to give You ourselves, our whole lives in service, that we would live for the King who is humiliated for us but has been exalted for us until the day He comes back to bring us into the fullness of our rest. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.